We're going to continue this morning with this series in the church, and then we'll put the bookmark there until the new year. We'll spend the next few weeks on some different things. But for this morning, uh, it's going to pick right up where we left off. Last week, we talked about the church, how it's both invisible and visible. And today, we will look at how the church is both local and universal. I've referenced before that one of the greatest blessings, one of the great treasures of church history are the creeds and the confessions and the catechisms that have been handed down to us from older generations. And we were blessed to hear some of that from the Heidelberg Catechism a moment ago. But what those are all about is in virtually every age, the church has had to do battle with the world outside its doors, but also, more significantly, from false teachers within its own walls. Those teachers throughout the years have led many, many souls astray. And praise God, those who are hearing his voice in every age, and there are many, and are devoting themselves to his word and walking in his spirit, they knew how to fight. They knew how to do battle. And they wouldn't go to physical war. They wouldn't take up actual arms, but they would go to the word, and they would bow in fervent prayer. They would fight their battles on their knees and by painstakingly searching the scriptures. And what's even more significant is that they would search the scriptures with the right heart, with the right intent. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we're guilty of, we will go passionately to the word, but to find that little dart we're looking for to throw at someone. Like, oh, I've got an ax to grind. I've got an issue that's bothering me. Hey, there's got to be a Bible verse about this or about that. And so we go on a hunt or we Google search or we, we text someone and we, isn't there a verse? And, and we want to use it as a, as a weapon in some way. But those in, in these different ages of church history who would fight for the truth and for orthodoxy, they would go to the scripture with the right heart of wanting to know, God, what have you said and what do you mean by what you say? And how can our hearts be brought into humble submission and worship before you? That's how victories are won in the church. Some of the spoils of those spiritual victories, we have become the happy beneficiaries of. And some of those spoils are the creeds. The creeds were often the culmination of the hardest fought battles. It was like the icing on the cake. In one of the most famous truth battles of the ages, a false teacher named Arius arose in the late 3rd century, early 4th century. I I kept getting those wrong in the first service. I think I've got it straight now. And began teaching that Jesus was not truly God of God. That he was lesser than God the Father. He was created by God the Father. He was not equal to God the Father, nor was he co-eternal as God the Father was eternal. He wasn't infinite like God the Father or divine in the same way. And this false teaching, you'd think people, you'd hope people would say, what's this guy? Who's this guy? What's he selling? Um, See ya. But this teaching was embraced. There was something in the sinful heart of man that wanted to hear such things. And this teaching spread like fire across the entire landscape of this day and age, the early church era. And for a time, it actually looked like it would completely overwhelm And overcome the church, but of course we know that is not possible. That will never be, because God will build his church. He has promised this. This false teaching, though, it did wreak havoc, and it led multitudes astray. And it's a good reminder that by our very nature, sometimes we forget just how much truth matters, how much doctrine matters. 
Occasionally, you'll hear people say, I've actually heard people say this through the years in the different churches I've been a part of, not often, but often enough. They'll make statements like this, that I don't really care about all your fancy doctrinal statements. What I'm interested in is how you treat people. And what they fail to realize is as soon as those words roll off their tongue, they have made a doctrinal statement. Everything you state, everything you believe, it's your doctrine. It's your truth claim. Saying, I don't care about your doctrinal statements, I care about how you treat people, that's a doctrinal statement. It's a self-defeating statement. And it's absolutely foolish to say, say such things. And what people like this don't realize is that the two are not mutually exclusive. In fact, those two things are intricately connected, what you believe and how you live. But it's what we believe that must first be established and then should be the catalyst for how we live. What we believe as truth greatly matters. To some, something like false teaching, it might sound mostly theoretical with little actual impact on day-to-day life. But what I hope you hear this morning, friends, is that as surely as the sun rises and sets, false teaching will destroy lives eventually. And if unchecked, it will destroy churches. And in the worst cases, it can actually help in the destruction of an entire nation. We've seen this in history, haven't we? That as truth is eroded, as moral goodness, God's goodness is is slowly taken away, as the fabric of right belief is, is slowly removed from a society, that society will eventually, surely crumble. And so how critically important that we be in the line of those who've gone before us, who have given their lives to upholding truth, to contending for truth. We read this in Jude. It's only one chapter, but it says chapter 1, verse 3 here. Beloved, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So we see that in every age of the church, God has raised up those who fear him more than they fear man, more than they fear woman, more than they fear culture, more than they fear governments. He has raised those up who will uphold his truth. And again, the simple fact is God will build his church. He will. And he doesn't need us to do that. How delightful if we get to be a part of that. But that is a privilege. And he doesn't need us. He will build it somewhere else if he doesn't find here those of us who want to see it built in the way he is ordained. And no power of hell, no scheme of man will ever be able to stand against him. We read these words in Matthew 16, 18, and again, uh, David referenced this, and we didn't plan this. We didn't meet and strategize our messages. God is just kind sometimes to impress certain things on, on more than one heart for a particular day. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I tell you, he said to Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, Peter's name literally meant, What? rock, and maybe sometimes that was a reference to his courage and his steadfastness and his willingness to stand up for what was right, but sometimes perhaps it also referred to what was in his head, because he could be a little brash and uh, speak without thinking. 
Peter's name meant rock. And so was Jesus referring literally to Peter, that on Peter himself he would build his church, that Peter would be the rock on which the church was built? That's, as we talked last week, of issues related to Roman Catholicism. That's their interpretation of that, that Peter was thus ordained the first ever pope and that he was to be the first in a long, unbroken succession of popes. And that papal authority would be the, the actual bedrock on which God would build his church? Is that what Jesus meant here? No. In Jesus' magnificent statement, what was the this referring back to? What was the antecedent to the word this? When Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, what was he actually saying? Was he saying on Peter? And I was was chuckling as I was saying these words the first service. I didn't plan this, but when I said the this, that sounded really funny. So I didn't want to be the only one that sounded funny. So everybody say with me, the this, the this. It kind of rolls nicely off the tongue, doesn't it? But what's the this referring to? You have to back up a couple verses to, to find the answer to this question. Matthew 16, 15 through 17. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So we have a couple of the thises. Here's another this that's very important. The this that's being referred to, that's referring back to, was this magnificent statement, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, on this rock will God build his church. The rock of the truth about Christ, the rock of the Christ himself, the Messiah, which makes perfect sense when you read all the other passages in the New Testament that say the same thing, that what the church actually is is the spiritual building that's been built up on what? This rock. Not Peter as the first bishop of Rome, but on this rock of Christ who is what? The cornerstone, the living stone, the foundation stone of the church. On this rock will the church be built up, which means Jesus is saying... I will build my church and no gate, no scheme of man, no gate of hell will prevail against it. On this rock, he's saying, I'll build it on myself and the truth about me. And Peter has affirmed that through his words. Jesus is the champion of all champions with his foot firmly on the neck of his enemy, on every enemy that would stand against him. He is the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the mighty one. And how incredible that that this very champion has invited us, sinful though we are, lost though we were, to step into eternal covenant relationship with himself. How marvelous. And so friends, the admonition this morning is this. Stand with the one who stands victorious over sin and death in the grave. Stand with the one who is victorious over every false teaching and teacher over every liar, every murderer filled with hatred, every addiction, every chain, every sickness and disease, what we see is that if your faith is in him, if you trust in him for salvation, you will live with him forever. He will raise you up on that last day he has promised to live forever with him. He will raise you out of sin, out of shame, out of sickness and disease that has so plagued our lives and our world that was born out of our sin. He will raise us out of the temptations that continually assail our flesh and appeal to our hearts. 
He will raise us out of our sorrows and our depression, out of any loneliness and fear. We see that our hope is real when it's in him, and it's alive. It's a living hope because it's based on the promise of resurrection unto life. It's a well-grounded promise, Jesus being the first fruits. We see time and again in the Old Testament how the prophets spoke of this. It was foreshadowed. It was foretold. And what's interesting about the Old Testament prophetic books is those prophets would often speak a message that was meant for their audience. These wicked Israelites or these rebellious people of Judah in the south, they would continually forsake the Lord and neglect his word. And God would raise up prophets who would speak to them and warn them and proclaim God's truth to them and warn of his coming judgment. And there was this real-time applicability to their message, but often what God was doing was using those prophetic words to actually point far beyond that original audience to the coming time when the Messiah would come, the ultimate priest, the ultimate king. David was just a foreshadowing of this type of king. His everlasting throne was the throne of the Messiah, not David himself. All throughout the Old Testament, we see these types and shadows pointing to the one who was to come. And so one of those passages in the prophetic books I wanted to share this morning was this in Hosea 6, 1 through 3. This was spoken to a specific people in a specific context, living at a specific time in a place. But, but there's a meaning that's far deeper and that points far up ahead when Hosea writes, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. Some people think, whoa, God has injured us? God has torn us to pieces? Well, his judgment is always on account of human sin and rebellion. But yes, he does these things out of, believe it or not, his love for his people. It's for the purpose of healing. It's for the purpose of binding up the wounds. And then what interesting language here in verse 2. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. That's the ultimate purpose of God for his people, that we live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains. Must be referring to rain in the winter somewhere else, not Wyoming. Like the spring rains that water the earth. It's no secret. We live in a sin-ravaged world. We have sin-ravaged bodies. We pay a price for being in Adam. We pay a price for contributing to the sin debt of mankind that put Jesus on the cross, but we have this hope of the resurrection, this sure hope. Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. There it is, there's the purpose. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. And what we see is that the true church in every age has upheld this 
very truth. And it's been passed down faithfully, generation after generation. In the days of the early church, evidence of their understanding these great truths came in the form of the creeds. And one of the most important of these was the Nicene Creed, which was crafted in response to who we referenced earlier, Arius, and this false teaching that arose called Arianism. That Jesus is a creation of the Father. He's a lesser version of God. He's not the same essence as God the Father. And that false teaching has actually resurfaced time and again through the centuries. It just wears new hats and goes by new names at different periods in time. But it's the same basic teaching about Jesus. And it actually has resurfaced even in our own day. And perhaps some of you can guess who the group would be that fits this description, that have twisted the scripture to make it say something it does not about the Son of God himself, that he's lesser than. Does anybody know what the modern version of Arianism is, or at least one of the versions? That Jesus is not the same essence of the Father, not equal to the Father. They knock at your door. They stand outside the post office. It's the belief of the Jehovah's Witness movement. Very, very important belief they have about the Son of God. And so... 1,700 years ago, instead of in, in the 20th and 21st centuries, in response to Arius, the church produced this creed as they gathered together to affirm what is true, what matters most. And I have it on the screen here for you to follow along, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages. And you can see now why they were so particular about the language they used in this creed. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made, for us and for our salvation. He came, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. And then everything we've covered up to this point, you might be thinking this is a sermon on the doctrine of Christ, not on the doctrine of the church, but everything up to this point has been background and context to lead up to this last statement of the Nicene Creed so that we appreciate why we have this creed and where it came from. But for today's purposes now, look what it says next. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, four descriptions. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. Look particularly at that statement. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. In prior weeks, we've discussed what it means for the church to be one. Uh, we talked about that, so we won't go over that again, that the church is one body of believers everywhere for all time. But notice Next, the use of the word Catholic. And I know some of you know very well what they meant by that word, but my heart this morning is for those that possibly don't know, and there likely are some in our building that don't know that. 
When you see a little C, it's a far different word than when you see a capital C. If there's ever a capital C at the front of the word Catholic, it's a reference to the Catholic Church or the Roman Catholic Church. But when you see a a small case, a lowercase c, all it is is a word that means universal or the whole thing. That's all it is with no reference to any particular church such as the Roman Catholic Church. And that's the word that is used here. You could use the word universal instead. It does not refer to Roman Catholicism, but refers to the body of Christ in all places at all times, the church universal, all who have called on the name of the Lord to be saved. They are the Catholic church. Now, it's very unfortunate, actually, that the Roman church, with all its wealth and power over the years, assumed ownership of that word and capitalized it to try to drive this point home to the masses that they were the only true universal church, the only visible church, and that to get to Jesus, you had to go through them. To get to heaven, you have to go through them. They commandeered that word, and it's become very confusing now for people through the years. But Catholic with a little c still means something much more important. All who know and love the Lord and are filled with his spirit are part of the church universal, which is the Catholic church with a little c. It can be a bit confusing, but it's very important to know. And so as we come to the word universal, we come to another part of our study of the church, Last week, we discussed how biblically the church is both visible and invisible, and today we look at the scriptural evidence of how the church is both local and universal. It's both small and very particular, and it's vast and very general. It's both and all of these things. Recall in the Greek, the word for church is usually is ekklesia, and it literally means a gathering or an assembly of people but it can have more than that, just that literal meaning. It's a word that can be nuanced, that can have slightly different meanings based on the usage or the context. And this happens all the time with words. Think as an example of the phrase, give her a rest, give her a rest. Now, linguists or those who like to study words and all these things, they might take the word rest and say, okay, let's do a word study on the word rest Let's see what its Latin roots are or its Greek words are, and we'll, we'll arrive at its literal meaning, and we'll say, here's what the word rest means. Here's what it literally means. Here's what it always means. You can't necessarily do that, right? Because a particular word might mean slightly different things based on how it's used. Because what does it mean when you say, give her a rest? Can anybody here give, a, give an authoritative answer on what that for sure always means? Because what it likely could mean is there's a woman that somebody's hassling, and you're saying, give her a rest. Quit hassling her. Ease up. Letter B, maybe you've been using a power tool all day and it's overheating and you say, give her a rest. Maybe you've smoked a beautiful brisket and you want to pull it right off the grill because it looks so delicious and just slice it up and eat it. And somebody who knows better, who's uh, mastered this craft says, no, give her a rest. You'll thank me later. Put her in a cooler for a couple hours, then slice her up. Sorry, that sounded horrible. Then slice it up. (laughs) Pronouns can be terrible things. Uh, in a bit more serious case, you could, you could find a husband who's praying over his disease-ridden wife who suffered incessantly, night and day for years and years, and praying to the Lord, Lord, would you give her a rest, an eternal rest, your rest? Would you give her rest from her suffering? You can see then how different words or expressions can mean slightly different things based on the context in which they're used. And as it relates to the biblical use of the word church, there are slightly different meanings at different times. 
That's why we talked about visible and invisible, and today, local and universal. Because what we see is that the church could be all believers everywhere for all time, but it could rightly refer to a specific body of people meeting in a town at a certain place. That's the difference between local and universal. The one is an expression of the other. The local church is, an, is one expression of the universal church. We could, we could speak of our friends down the road at First Baptist Church, and we could rightly say that is the church. That is the Christian church. It's not the only Christian church, but it can rightly be said to be called the church or a church. You can also refer to every believer across the world right now who is suffering or in hiding or being persecuted for their faith, you could rightly refer to them as the persecuted church. They're not literally physically meeting together, assembling every week in a specific place, but it's an expression that is accurate about a a certain company of God's people that are bound by certain characteristics. And so we can look in Scripture and see that there are different meanings of this word or different expressions of it. And this next part will go pretty quickly. It's not hard to understand, I don't think, and it's not hard to demonstrate in the New Testament, and so we'll just move through a few of these verses, and then we'll be putting the bookmark in this series till the new year. But what we see in these these next verses is that the word church can apply to a gathering of believers at any level and in any number. Maybe just a few, maybe a few hundred, maybe thousands, or maybe believers the world over, all who have ever lived or ever will live. Now, on the smaller, more localized level, a church doesn't even have to meet in a building like this. In the New Testament, it wasn't too uncommon for a church to meet in a person's home. It was called a house church, and that was a very valid form of church, and it still is. We read this in Romans 16, 3 through 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ, in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me, Paul said, not only I, but all the notice the plural, churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And then he says, greet also the church that meets at their house. That's a local church. That's a small version of what it means to be the church, a particular version. And that must have been a pretty significant house church, actually, because it got mentioned yet again in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 16, 19. We read, the churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. So you could look at those house churches and say that's the church. But that's not all that the church is, because this lens through which we're looking at the church, we can zoom that out, and we find that besides being just in a building or just in a living room, the church can also be those believers within an entire city. For 2 Corinthians 1.1, we read, to the church of God, in Corinth, meaning all the believers there in that city. Similarly, 1 Thessalonians 1.1, to the church of the Thessalonians, all those who lived in Thessalonica who were believers. And then this lens that we're looking at Scripture through today, you can zoom it out even farther. I had this debate earlier. Is it further or farther? Where's Claire? Further, okay, thank you. I knew you'd know. We can zoom out further and we find believers in an entire region still properly referred to as the church, not just a city. Look at this, 2 Corinthians 1.1. Again, we just looked at this verse, to the church of God in Corinth, but then zoom out, together with all his holy people throughout Achaia. So now we're looking at a regional church. 
And then Acts 9.31, then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It increased in numbers. So you see a regional church there, all the believers in a particular wide geographical area. And then finally, our, our lens can zoom out as far as it can possibly go, and we see the church being referred to as all those who Jesus paid for with his blood. He purchased for himself a body, a bride. As we read in Ephesians 5.25, Christ loved the church. Does that mean just the church who meets at Cornerstone? Does it mean just the church that met at Corinth? Does it mean just the church of the Middle Ages? No, it's everyone everywhere who's redeemed. And so, as a concluding point for today, here on the screen for you, any gathering of the redeemed from any place and at any time, whether a few in a living room or the multitudes in heaven itself, can rightly be called the church. Any gathering of the redeemed from any place and at any time, whether a few in a living room or the multitudes in heaven itself or anything in between, can rightly be called the church. Now, it's important to, to note, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, the one category you don't find in the scriptures for what makes up a church is an individual. Now, you're still a believer. You could still be redeemed, but you literally have to gather and be a part of a body to be a part of a church, which God certainly calls us to be. Now, is this just like a, a doctrinal lecture that you'd, you'd hear in a freshman Bible class on belief of the church? No, I, I think this message actually matters in very practical, tangible ways because what we find is that throughout the ages of Christian church history, people make wrong statements about the church and try to exclude people or deceive people and create confusion, if nothing else, among God's people because there are actual books written even in our own day that argue this point. You know, we should kind of disestablish places like this, buildings like this, because the real version of church, the authentic New Testament form of a church is a house church. And so they'll, they'll cite verses like I cited a little bit ago for you and say, see, look, there's the church that met at so-and-so's house or so-and-so's house. It's in the New Testament. That's the church. Not all this, all this that you see. What we find is that's a that's a very deceiving statement because that's not the only thing the New Testament describes about the church. It's just one version, one expression of the church. Or another very destructive teaching that's arisen and that we've talked about now for a couple weeks that was the dominant teaching for a thousand years or more. To truly belong to the church, you have to be baptized into us by our terms. Not in, just into the name of Christ, but into our church, because we're the only church. And you have to receive communion from one of our priests to be a part of the church. That's why these doctrines matter. That's why you have to, to make sure the lens zooms out appropriately to see what God actually says about who are those who are his church. And to try to not just point the finger at others, but to point it at ourselves. I don't know if you've experienced this. I have, growing up in, in a number of different church bodies. You'll hear statements and they're more vague, but they're statements that betray spiritual immaturity and naivety as, as believers, professing believers, will say things like this, all those other people in all those other churches, they don't really get it. We're the ones who have, really have the spirit. We're the ones who really have the discernment. 
God's giving us revelations about secret things. And yeah, there's all these other churches, but they, you know, you should, you should join us because we're the ones who really have the line to God, the, the direct line, and, and, and the other people are deceived. We're the ones who really knows what's going on in the world. We're the ones who preach the real word, not watered down like all the, those other churches. You'll hear statements like that. It's very, very misleading and damaging based on what God says about his body across the whole world. And so even though these are kind of finer points of theology, I think they really matter in, in very practical, everyday ways. And so to conclude today, I want to just refer back to one of our first main points on week number one. And that is this. The church is not a physical building. The church is the people of God who form a spiritual building built on the sure foundation of Jesus, the cornerstone of the church. Now, the church is more than, than that. The Bible says more than just that, but this is foundational. All right, we'll pick this back up again in the new year. So thank you guys for your time here with us this morning. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We're so grateful for your word. We're so grateful for your church, for your body. We're so grateful to be one small part of the people you're gathering to yourself from all places at all times. Lord, forgive us for the many times and ways in which we have gotten it wrong. We've, we've thought wrongly about your church, or we've even taught wrongly about your church. Help us to have a, a true, deep, genuine appreciation for our brothers and our sisters scattered all across this world, and those from ages past, and those who are yet to be born. Lord, forgive us for the times that we have, have uh, felt a feeling of despising those who are your beloved, of making war with those who are not our enemies. And of course, Lord, we're referring to those that actually preach the gospel and uphold your truth. There are many who are not true churches because of their compromise in, in those ways. But Lord, for all those who are faithful to your word, help us to see the precious bonds you've given us. Thank you, Lord, that you're gathering your people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And one day we will see with fully opened eyes the marvelous redemptive work you've done from beginning to end. You are the Alpha and the Omega. You see all things before you all at once. You know all things, Lord. There's very little that we see in regard to eternal things. And so help us to be faithful to what you've revealed. Lord, thank you so much uh, for this body gathered here. I pray for those that weren't able to be here today. I know there have been many who are sick this last week, and I pray that you would make them well. Lord, thank you for the blessing of technology that allows us to get the message out to them still. And I pray just a special prayer for all those homesick and recovering that you would be with them, give them rest. Lord, help us as we move through this holiday season to keep our hearts focused on you, worshipful toward you. Lord, we love the celebration. We love the festivities. We love the, the time with family and friends. And, uh, but how easily we can lose our sense of awe and wonder and worship if we're not careful. So help us to love and to adore and to cherish you above all. In these coming weeks, the, the days will just fly by, I'm sure. So help us to be so purposeful, Lord, about worshiping you in the depth of our heart. Um, we thank you, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.